Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 14th. 2019 here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I have to admit, as I was prepping for today's show, I toggled over to Facebook, which is a bad habit, I know. But in my Facebook feed, I saw a post from a woman whose iPhone screen had cracked, and she asked, should I take it to the Apple store or repair it somewhere else? Now, I'm betting this has happened to you at some point. When it happened to me, I opted for the Apple store, and it wasn't cheap to replace. But how many of us think about fixing things ourselves or know of an alternative repair shop that could fix it? That's a question our intern Kevin Morrison posed to people recently at West Hartford Town Center earlier this week. Judy Laterer, I've lived in West Hartford for a long time. If it's a car, I'm going to get it fixed within reason. If it's something smaller that is going to be obsolete soon, I'll consider replacing it. Mike, uh, New Haven. If I can fix it myself, I'll do it, but if it's more expensive, then I'll just I'll just replace it. Uh, my name is Seishu Badrinath. Avon, Connecticut. I think it comes down to usability of the item. I mean, if it's a vacuum cleaner, we use it all the time uh, and we need it. We'll have to weigh the, the cost of uh, repairing it to buying something new and more advanced. Sue, Ewington. I look at YouTube and if I can fix it myself, I'll give it a try. But if it takes too much time, I'll get a professional. <laughs> RJ Roy, Windsor, Connecticut. I am one that uses it until it completely dies. <laughs> I will fix it and duct tape it, and until it explodes, I will fix it. Once again, those are voices on the street gathered by our intern, Kevin Morrison. Today, where we live, we're going to learn about the right to repair movement. Coming up, we'll talk to a Connecticut business owner about the challenges she runs into when trying to repair smartphones. You think it's easy as ordering a replacement part? Think again. We'll also learn how right-to-repair laws in places like Massachusetts allow independent repair shops access to basic diagnostic information from car manufacturers. But as technology takes over our cars more and more, will independent mechanics be left in the dark or forced to spend more money to purchase the proprietary software so they can fix your car? We're going to talk all about that just ahead. First, joining me now from a studio at WBUR in Boston is Leah Chan Greenwald, who's Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University School of Law. That's in Boston, where she specializes in, in intellectual property law. Uh, Leah, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk more about this right to repair movement later on. But we wanted to start um, out with this idea of intellectual property. When we hear that, uh, can you tell us what that means? Yeah, it, um, it's been in the news more recently. And so hopefully listeners aren't as um, unfamiliar with it um, as maybe they would have been, you know, a number of years ago. But intellectual property really refers to all of those intangible um, you know, ideas, inventions, creative, um, you know, creative thoughts that you have down on a paper or you record, um, you know, it could be a photograph, it could be a song, it can be, you know, the in, um, Apple phone, you know, is, is um, all covered in intellectual property. It could be 
a trade secret, like Coca-Cola's um, secret formula is actually a trade secret, and that's considered intellectual property. And it can also be a logo. Um, so the famous Coca-Cola logo, the apple that you take a bite out of, that um, all of that is intellectual property. Uh, we mentioned uh, intellectual property uh, laws that, again, protect uh, people who are creating and innovating. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we purchase particular items or, or products like uh, an Apple iPhone. But can you talk more about uh, the particular protections uh, that people uh, have through intellectual property laws and how they vary? Many of us have heard of patents and copyrights, and we're just wondering if you could tell us more about those differences. Yeah. So um, there are are four different types of intellectual property law. Um, they're you know it's divided into different categories. They have each has their own particular set of laws. Um, you've got the patent, the copyright, trademark, and trade secret, um, and each covers a very um, specific part of you know what we would consider you know, any given product. And so, you know, I think the Apple iPhone is, is a great example because it really does actually cover um, sort of the, the whole spectrum of intellectual property. So, um, and, and, the, and the intellectual property laws that protect it. At the, at the basis, um, and I'll, so I'll go through that, but I think at the basis, um, intellectual property law does give the um, intellectual property owner the right to do with it what they want. And and what we like to say is it actually gives the right to exclude from um, others sort of doing doing with them. So, for example, there was a famous um, case with the Apple iPhone that they brought against Samsung because they claimed that Samsung had infringed their patents um, and in the way they desi- Samsung designed um, their phones and um, and uh, and so you know it was actually it's been in the courts it's still sort of um, you know there's some minor things still going on for the last you know ten years um, or more. Um, and so, you know, in, uh, they have patents, um, and the patents uh, protect both the design, the way the iPhone looks, as well as um, what uh, what could be, for example, uh, something that Apple invented that makes it easier internally, for instance, something that we don't even see, um, to use the iPhone, and that's um, they could have a utility uh, or usefulness kind of patent. They also have a trademark. So on the back of every iPhone, we see that Apple logo. Um, And all of that allows Apple to prevent others. So the Samsung example, they, you know, all of those laws allowed then Apple to bring this lawsuit against Samsung and win some hefty damages um, and to protect their space. And um, however, uh, on the flip side, though, intellectual property law is supposed to be um, utilized in sort of a a more of a surgical approach, if you will. Um, It is supposed to carve out the space for the owners to be able to exclude others, to innovate and invent, and it's supposed to incentivize that. Um, Because during the period of time that their intellectual property is protected, they do, in fact, have a monopoly over their product. And so that's why Apple, you know, had, um, had the market for smartphones for so long. Because they were the first to the market, they were the first to invent that. They had the patents over, you know, and other every other company like Samsung had to figure out, well, how could we take the idea? Because the idea is not protected. How could we take the idea of a smartphone and do it ourselves? And so you have this innovative idea 
that then is spread across everybody else. Um, but the way that Apple decided to do it should be protected for a limited part of time. Um, and then afterwards, it's it you know it's sort of this bargain. Um, you know, we give you this. Um, the the government gives you this. You know, mini mini monopoly for a limited part of time, and then you you know you have to um, you give it up, right? You mm-hmm. you don't have it any longer. Um, and that's supposed to again incentivize, you know, all the companies to continually be innovating. That's interesting when you mentioned a period of time, uh, this mini, mini monopoly that the companies have. And I'm curious if you could talk more about um, some of the other reasons why these types of intellectual property rights are able to expire. Like I was thinking about um, how we see prescription drugs and then mm-hmm. eventually you see generic drugs. Yep. And of course, right. when that happens, um, it's better for the consumer because it costs a lot less. That's correct. Exactly. And so... Um, the the idea is that particularly with patents and so when you know when we're talking about um, you know uh, drugs in particular and generic drugs what allows a generic drug to be put on the market is the patent expiration and so the, you know a patent term and 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 some of this is constitutionally based um, you know in the United States Constitution we do have language um, that does say that it should be protected patents and copyright should actually be protected for a limited time because the idea is that we want to incentivize, but we don't want to ever stop. So just think about the example of the pharmaceutical product. Mm-hmm. If the patent was never able to expire, we would never have that generic drug to then lower the costs for consumers. Um, you know, on the flip side, then you have, you know, manufacturers sort of um, strategizing, well, you know, when my patent expires or, you know, when my copyright expires, what then? And so another example of that is Disney. Um, and, you know, what uh, copyright, um, you know, is, is, is very fraught with controversy. Um, and there's there's a lot there. But Disney is a good example of with their um, steam willy, uh, steamboat willy. I don't know if you know that, um, uh, you know, old black and white image. And um, that copyright is actually coming up for expiration, I believe, this year, if not next year. Um, and so, you know, looking at how that company is sort of positioning mm-hmm. Steamboat Willie um, and trying to perhaps maybe um, eventually make a trademark claim. Because trademarks is something we haven't spoken about. It's not in the same constitutional clause that patents and copyright are in. Um, and so trademark trademark law is, is sort of a difference, as well as trade secrets, are sort of a different um, uh, area. And so trademarks can actually um, be protected uh, in perpetuity as long as they're constantly being used um, in commerce. So, you know, if Disney, using that example of Steamboat Willie, can make a great claim to a trademark in the image of Steamboat Willie, um, they could be protecting Steamboat Willie for forever, really. Uh, my guest today is Leah Chan Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston, uh, that's Suffolk University School of Law. As uh, we focus our hour on uh, right to repair, we're going to be learning about that in a few minutes. We wanted to start with uh, a background on intellectual property rights and the differences, the different types, as Leah has mentioned. And so when people think about uh, Leah, uh, what they purchase uh, and some of the technology that's in their house, uh, talk about how when we think about repairing things, how those intellectual property rights uh, come into play, because it's not as simple as maybe opening the back of, say, your coffee maker and trying to figure out why it's not making coffee like it used to. That's right, exactly. Um, You know, I think it might be surprising (laughs) to the everyday listener to think that, um, 
you know, they, you know, there's there's two things. They, they may not be able to open up the back of the coffee machine and fix it. Um, and then they may not actually own what they think they own. So the first thing, you know, with the coffee machine, um, you know, as I was talking about with the um, all the types of um, intellectual property rights, so that coffee machine is just covered in intellectual property rights from patents to um, to copyright because um, of the software that's embedded in those coffee machines. So those you know the easy to use screen with the programmable features, um, all of that is software inside. And so um, you know even if you wanted to, if even if you were handy and you're able to. Um, open up that coffee machine, and you know how you have some tools. You may not be able to access the um, the software inside um, because it's protected mm. um, by a sort of a you know um, a uh, sort of an you know anti um, um, what's the word I'm looking for the the anti hacking type you know so you might actually have to hack into it. So that's that's sort of another level of skill, um, and it actually could be illegal um, depending on depending on um, on how you're doing it and where you're coming from. I think there have our listeners, some of them, uh, when they run into, say, if we're going to talk again about Apple products, if a particular uh, Apple product is not working correctly, um, if you try to do it yourself or have someone look at it, um, that can then uh, cause issues with Apple even agreeing to continue a warranty or fixing it because you've already interfered with it. Does that also relate to what you're talking about, Leah? So that's that's absolutely correct. Um, But that's a different um, area that's sort of consumer protection law. Um, so warranties sort of fall under um, consumer protection law and, and contracts. And so, you know, every product we we purchase does come with some type of warranty, either, you know, an explicit warranty or something implicit that the law provides for us. Um, and so, you know, that's the d- domain of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. Um, and they have been policing more and more those types of claims. Like if you open up your, um, uh, you know, uh, console, your gaming console, you will void your warranty and they have stickers on there. And, and so mm-hmm. the FTC actually just recently sent out, um, I think last year, uh, letters to these companies like Sony to say, that's you, that's illegal what you're doing. So um, <laughs> just opening up something. So the problem, though, actually, um, is that you you probably couldn't even if you could fix even if you and I could in fact fix our iPhones mm-hmm. there the tools available are few and far between as well as the information and that's where the IP has come in to allow the um, Apple to to exclude others from that information and just provide it to the authorized dealers and so that's why when you went into the Apple um, Apple Store it costs an arm and leg to get your cracked screen fixed um, when it should only cost maybe $50. Mm. Uh, Not all of us want to be running to the store or having to purchase new items. Uh, This is uh, kind of the the thinking behind this right to repair movement that has popped up in recent years. So uh, Leah Chan Greenwald, who is my guest, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston, could you talk about um, some of the the reasons why this right to repair movement um, has been growing specifically in Massachusetts. Yeah, so um, you know, I think it goes back to the sense that if we purchase products, um, you know, ranging from cars to our phones to dishwashers, you know, washer and dryers, you know, large appliances, we should own them and we should have the right to repair them. And you know, in sort of the New England area, I'd say there's definitely that strong sense of 
personal autonomy. You know, um, I mean, our closest neighbor, one of our closest neighbor here is New Hampshire. You know, that they have the live free or die, you know, <laughs> slogan. Um, so there, there is that sense. And so I think the outrage um, that's been experienced um, in Massachusetts is, is reflected across the nation, you know, sort of waking up to consumers waking up rather slowly, unfortunately, to the fact that, you know, all of these connected and smart devices, um, while it makes our life easier um, in the short term, could actually make our life harder and more expensive in the long term. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk more about this specific right to repair law in Massachusetts uh, that relates uh, to the automotive industry. Um, But we're also thinking about, again, uh, the ability to repair things that we buy, whether it's something that costs $20 or a couple grand, uh, people are also thinking about this. Is it because of uh, their concerns about where this stuff ends up when we it no longer works, uh, the landfills that are filling up and the impact on the environment? Leah? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, concern, I think a lot of competing concerns at, um, at issue with the right to repair, you know, a lot of things intersect here. So it's not just that personal, the idea of personal autonomy, mm-hmm. but it is environmental concern, you know, that um, uh, some of the uh, nonprofit groups out there have been doing a great job sort of highlighting how many landfills all of our iPhones that we throw away could fill up. Um, and so you actually see the environmental side of it um, and the environmental concerns um uh, pushing the right to repair movement forward in Europe. So Europe has recently released some, you know, um, directives and um, some indications. The commission there has, you know, released this to say that they're going to require, they're going to regulate that uh, manufacturers of large um, electronics are going to need to make sure that um, their products last longer and therefore are able to be repaired, which is which is pretty impressive. And the ability to the products to to last longer and uh, ability to be repaired, also making uh, public uh, these uh, repair manuals. So if somebody wants to go to YouTube or um, you know do a video of this is how I fixed my coffee maker and this is where you can get your parts, uh, is that something that can also come easily, or is that where people will also be tripped up and trying to figure out you know how to to fix it, a particular item? That's right. So that is another area where it, the information is not as readily available as one would think. Um, and so uh, in that in that you know manufacturers are saying well. We don't want to have consumers um, be able to have access to this information because we're scared of what they're going to do with their stuff. Uh, and so you have uh, or, you know, an organization called iFixit, uh, where the CEO there, um, his name is Kyle Weens, and he said, you know, he's basically said, that's ridiculous, and we're going to do this ourselves. And so, you know, he, um, him, his organization and his community has has attempted to try to do exactly that is, you know, um, take apart stuff and figure out how to repair it on their own to then release it to others to be able to do that. On the flip side, Aaliyah, before we head to break, does that also impact uh, when we think about the uh, the ideas behind intellectual property, um, allowing people to, again, create and innovate um, and then uh, have the ability uh, to make money off of their inventions? But if all of that is publicly available, you know, what's in it for somebody uh, to want to create a product uh, if it's not something that they can continue to make money off of? Sure, right. So we're not talking about limiting the intellectual, so the right to repair movement is not talking about limiting any initial intellectual property rights um, or protections. It's 
it's talking about um you know allowing consumers access so they you know so the manufacturers are making money by selling their products um and they're selling it at a premium because they have the intellectual property protections on that product after they've sold it though that's what we're talking about mm-hmm. so we're talking about the consumers being and and you know post consumers being able to um sell that product to other people to fix it to have it last longer um to pass it down not to be um you know basically manipulated into purchasing newer um products all the time to to support sort of a um an inflated bottom line that the companies have my guest today, Leah Chan Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University School of Law in Boston, where she specializes in intellectual property law. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to talk about uh, more about the right to repair movement, including laws affecting items you own, like cars. Now, do you take your car to an independent auto shop or a dealership? What information do mechanics have access to, and should that information be expanded? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 14th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about the right to repair movement as technology takes over more and more of the everyday items we use, from smartphones to coffee makers to cars. My guest today, Leah Chan Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston. Uh, Leah, I wanted to ask before we talk more about the automotive industry, your, your state in Massachusetts has a right to repair law that relates to cars and the people who fix them. Can you just uh, briefly update us on you know, why that law came to be? Yeah, sure. So in 2012, the Massachusetts voters actually voted into law um, the uh, the right to repair your car law, um, and that only focuses on um, cars in the state of Massachusetts, um, and and requires that manufacturers provide the same types of information and access to diagnostic information about cars that they do to their authorized dealers, so that. Consumers in Massachusetts have the right to choose where they get their car fixed. Right? Do you go to the dealer like you're you've been asking? Mm-hmm. Do you go to the dealer? Or do you get to go to the independent repair shop um, that you know, maybe is down the street? Maybe you know the person, right? Maybe they're, they're your neighbor um, and you trust them. Um, and uh, and so that was in 2012. It was a ballot initiative in Massachusetts. Based on that, um, that actually. Um, uh, pushed the car um, industry to enter into a memorandum of understanding, a nationwide mm. memorandum of understanding that basically allows the same uh, rights um, across the country to other in other states. And so other states didn't have to pass a law similar to Massachusetts. And that's um, and that's actually what the right to repair movement wanted. Um, and now the, actually the car, the automotive right to repair um, sort of Wing has come back um, and has is has been lobbying for a new law um, to update the 2012 law. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because uh, technology continues to change. That's correct. Exactly, yeah. technology in the cars has changed um, dramatically. So you know, information, uh, diagnostic information about your car that they that are called telematics, um, which sort of um, attaches or connects the GPS to all of the how your car is working, the speed of your car, 
what your car is doing when you're going at that speed. All of that data um, is now um, in the newer cars um, transmitted wirelessly. Um, and so there are new systems that the you know independent repair shops um, are you know are, are saying that they're not getting access to. So um, so the the lobby has come back and said we need to update this law. Um, they haven't had any success um, in the legislative legislative process. And so what they're going to do is um, attempt to go for another ballot initiative for um, 2020. Again, we've been talking about this proposal um, in the state of Massachusetts. We wanted to get some Connecticut perspective. So joining our conversation now is Bob Amendola, who is president of Auto Body Association of Connecticut and also owner of Auto Works of Westville. Uh, Bob, welcome to our show. Yes, hi. Thank you. Uh, just uh, briefly, uh, we've been learning about right to uh, the right to repair movement, and uh, we heard a bit from Leah about uh, Massachusetts' right to repair law um, that affects uh, the automotive industry. Um, as someone who owns a shop in Connecticut, can you talk about um, your thoughts on right to repair and what information independent uh, car shops should have when trying to fix someone's car? Absolutely. The automotive industry is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. And exactly what what was being said about telematics and, and uh, ADAS systems, LIDAR, sonar, uh, it's amazing. And the amount of automotive fatalities worldwide is an absolutely staggering number. And the manufacturers are addressing this, which is wonderful to make safer vehicles. And things are changing at an incredible uh, speed, as, as I had said. Um, the importance of having access to this information is crucial in fixing these cars. Um, shops, we're losing a vast number of shops in the United States, uh, collision repair shops. In Connecticut, over 10 years ago, we had over 1,000 shops. Today, um, collision repairs are less than um, or approximately 400 in strength. Um, most dealerships do not even have their own collision repair shops. Um, some do, but most do not because it's so specialized. Um, the thing that is happening is the first thing that we do before we touch a car is we have to pre-scan this car to see where the electronics uh, and where the systems are and, and what is damaged or what is inoperable. And then we then address that. And we've we've been scanning cars at our shop for over eight years. And I have to tell you, the battle was incredible with the with the collision carriers. Um, they didn't want to um, acknowledge it. They didn't want to pay for it. They didn't want to address it. We had to go to the manufacturers and have them put out their own position statements, which most manufacturers were very good about doing that because it was we're dealing with people's safety and they then at at that point in time the insurance company could no insurance companies could no longer um dispute this mm-hmm. so that was a big step so what has happened is they've recognized it but now um some of the information that we need um there is automotive one stop um, that we can go to these and, and look up this repair procedure research that what needs to be done on every car, and, and the there is a cost associated with that, and we're, we're finding a big 
pushback on, on that as well. So I'm sorry, uh, Bob. So explain that a little bit more. So is there a particular software that your shop needs to get particular information about a, from a car manufacturer of how to fix something if it's not working? True. A- absolutely. Uh, we have to um, uh, research that data on where um, panel placement can be changed and, and the types of, of uh, spot welds that are supposed to be used and the types of MIG wire that are required for the various different metals and aluminums that are, are coming into play. The one thing that our association has been looking into is manufacturers in one respect are, are trying to help educate the industry by um, having certified programs. And the certified programs, there's, it's a double-bladed sword because there are good things about it, but there are also bad things about it. And, and it, this is where it hinges in on this you know, right to repair. Um, the information we feel should any manufacturer that is building vehicles cell phones, whatever intellectual property that they are have designed, absolutely they are entitled to sell their product at a, at a, a, a value point that they, they find the consumer wants and, and be successful. But once they put that out there, like what your program has, has discussed, it's so important that these items can be serviced and, and we don't want to have monopolies. We, we want to have free trade in this country. And with guarding that that information, it, it inhibits that. And I, I commend Massachusetts for taking this lead. It was a wonderful thing. But getting back to the the point of the cert is that certain manufacturers won't sell parts um, to repairers unless they're certified. And part of being certified is paying into their program. So on one count, the information and the education is paramount. And, and we do our own um, research and, and we do our own training in our shops and, and keep our um, um, technicians abreast on what they need. And when they're repairing a car, they'll get a sheet of, of what they need. And it just doesn't go out to them. It, it, it goes out to them with an explanation so that they fully understand it. And what's happening is the trades are nationally lacking in, in uh, the staff. So um, there, there's there's a big resurgence for the these these trades. These people that are working on cars properly are becoming at the level of aircraft mechanics. Mm. And yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, well, Bob, we thank you for giving us a call. Bob Amendola, president of Auto Body Association up in Connecticut, also owner of Auto Works of Westville, as we talk more about the right to repair movement. Um, I should mention that there are no current uh, bills before uh, the Connecticut General Assembly that's looking at right to repair related to the automotive industry uh, in Connecticut, uh, unlike what's happening in Massachusetts. But we wanted to get a, also a different perspective on this issue. Uh, Jim Fleming's uh, with us, president of the Connecticut. Connecticut Automotive Retailers Association, which represents new car dealers in Connecticut. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. And so um, you've been following uh, the Massachusetts Right to Repair movement. And as we heard from my other guest, Leah Chan Greenwald, uh, there's now um, uh, emphasis on trying to expand that right to repair law to um, allow mechanics access to what's called telematics, so more of that digital information coming from cars. Uh, what's your take? Is this something that needs to happen? 
Well, I, I think it's very important to draw a distinction between the right to repair movement for automobiles and other consumer products such as computers. Um, Automobile right to repair is already available uh, either in law, which you have in Massachusetts, or by practice um, of the OEMs. And uh, you know, I, I listened to Bob and I listened to Leah, and all of the information that is necessary to repair a vehicle is presently available to independent repair shops, to dealer repair shops, and consumers themselves can get access to whatever information they need to repair these vehicles. That may not be the case with such things as computers and TVs and iPhones and so forth. So it's important to draw that distinction. Um, in Massachusetts, for example, uh, I know that 70% of all of the post-warranty repairs are done by independent repair shops. So they're already doing this. So when you talk about right to repair, I think you have to draw a distinction between the automotive industry and other industries that are out there. And the digital right to repair effort, I think, brings in many, many more complications than a, what, what I would consider to be the right to repair, which is already in place in the automotive industry. So, Jim, uh, as we hear more about technology uh, taking over our cars, uh, thinking uh, to uh, cars that will be assembled you know, past 2022 and this idea of uh, them being more digital. So what does that mean for the consumer and where that information goes? Well, um, the cars will get more complicated. Um, certainly the safety features in cars and trucks now are amazing. Uh, they protect lives, uh, which is what we all want to see happen. We want to make sure these vehicles are operating properly. And information that's necessary to make repairs to those systems um, will still be available in 2020 or 2025. What's being asked for under the digital right to repair is access to uh, by third parties to real-time uh, consumer data. So, you know, I'm the former commissioner of, of consumer protection for the state of Connecticut. I have, would ha I have real concerns about why anybody, any third party, needs to have access to that information. It is not necessary to repair a vehicle. Um, for example, if we were to do that, a mechanic um, in this country or someone else would actually have the ability to turn your car off and on. I don't think that consumers want that. I don't think it's good for the industry. So the difference between digital right to repair and right to repair, I think you have to draw that mm -hmm. distinction. Well, I want to thank uh, Jim Fleming for joining us, president of the Connecticut Automotive Retailers Association, which again represents new car dealers in Connecticut. I wanted to bring back into the conversation Leah Chan Greenwald here on Where We Live. She's associate dean and professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston. Uh, Leah, what's your take with what Jim is saying about the, there being differences uh, as we move forward? Um, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the way that it's been... Um, uh, the lines have been drawn have been to um, separate the the automotive right of, right to repair um, on both sides want to be separated from the digital or consumer products uh, right to repair movement um, because they're just different interests involved um, and 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 I agree that the the products and and what um, the capacity for for people um, are you know are different um, from my perspective though and and I come from it at a you know sort of an academic um, you know law, law professor perspective um, the intellectual property the laws are the same um, and at the end of the day, 
from from my perspective, the the consumer the consumer is the same, right? Where I I you know I own my car or I lease it actually. I don't really own it, um, and and I I want to get it repaired just the same way as I want to get my phone repaired. So so I don't know. You know I think the the industries have have definitely. Um, Drawn their lines, but I'm not sure it matters so much to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Except for if the the dealer is the only place that you can take your car to be repaired, right. the the costs are much greater at times. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, exactly. Uh, again, my guest Leah Chan Greenwald, associate dean and professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston. As we learn more about the right to repair movement, coming up, we want to expand our conversation to something else uh, many of us have today, and that's smartphones. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 14th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, before we talk more about the information consumers should be able to access when they purchase products like smartphones, we should stress there's another reason some people support this right to repair movement, and that's because it eliminates waste piling up in landfills. And we're going to tweet out some information at Where We Live about some Connecticut towns who operate repair cafes. It's a really cool idea, and we wanted to let you know about that. Now, something many of us can't live without or are our cell phones. And when they break, who do you turn to? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, my guest from studios at WBUR in Boston, Leah Chan Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston. And joining us now uh, by phone is Beth Drake, who's co-owner of Off the Hook Cell Phone and Device Repair in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So how long has your business been open? Uh, we've been open close to two years. And so uh, tell us about the people that come into your shop. Uh, Are they uh, people who may hold on to their phone as long as they can? Uh, Or they're just thinking maybe they can save some money if they're not going to a a brand name store to fix something like a crack screen? We have a mixture of both, actually. We have people coming in looking for repairs because they think it's a way to maintain, hold on to the expensive uh, smartphone that they've already purchased hoping that'll be a relatively inexpensive fix, and sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, unfortunately. So we also have people looking to trade in their phones, thinking that that might be an option. We also have a mix of people who need to repair their phone before mm-hmm. they can trade it in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, you know, a mixture of all different types of customers looking for, for different uh, different needs. So you run an independent repair shop. So uh, can you talk about, have you run into issues with particular phone companies' uh, intellectual property claims uh, when you're trying to repair someone's phone? Can you describe some of those challenges? Well, the problem we would run into um, with certain types of phones is um, obtaining the schematics for those phones to find out exactly what would, what would need to repair if there was soldering um, and micro-soldering involved. Mm. Um, so that's right Right now the biggest opposition that we have is having access to smartphone and computer schematics that would aid us in those types of repairs. What about particular parts? We're an independent repair shop, so we're not certified by either Samsung or Apple or any of the main uh, manufacturers. So basically what we do is we buy what's referred to as aftermarket parts. 
um, basically they're built exactly the same way as the original parts, but they don't carry the manufacturer's stamp of approval on them. Mm. And so we're not um, we're we're not allowed to purchase actual um, manufacturer parts. Mm. And then does that impact, uh, because you're able to get these other particular parts, is it cheaper for the cu- customer in the long run? It is less expensive for the customer in the long run, yes. Um, but, you know, most customers come in saying, I want, you know, for an Apple phone, I want an OEM screen. We tell them the price of the OEM screen, um, and then they say, okay, I'm okay with aftermarket. So there is a big price difference uh, with the OEM. The OEM for us is original manufacturer re, um, repaired. So basically, we can take an iPhone screen, and if it's only the um, digitizer that's broken, we can put a new digitizer on it, and technically, it's an OEM part. It's now still an Apple part because it has an Apple display on it. Thank you, Beth, for your perspective. Again, Beth Drake, co-owner of Off the Hook Cell Phone and Device Repair in Middletown, Connecticut. I wanted to turn back to my guest, Leah Chan Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston. Uh, can you talk more, Leah, about how uh, big tech companies like uh, Apple uh, try to enforce their intellectual property rights claims when it comes to uh, shops like Beth's, where they're just trying to fix people's phones, but it might be harder to do without these schematics, as she mentioned? Right, right. And you just heard Beth talk about um, the, you know, lack of access to schematics information, as well as parts, you know, the original parts. Um, And so, you know, Apple does have the right to, um, you know, under our intellectual property laws, they do have a right to protect their um, their intellectual property. Um, What they have been doing, though, is just not making, you know, available the the information the and even with the parts um you know you heard beth say that she can use aftermarket parts i was happy to hear that she hasn't been caught up in any of the customs issues that um in the importation issues that some other um repair shops have been caught up in and so you'll see in the news every now and then when somebody actually tries to import in these aftermarket parts um, that they're that they're seized at the border by customs, um, and and the manufacturers, Apple, Microsoft, um, claim that they are counterfeit products, and then uh, importers like Bath Store, um, small businesses need to then wrangle with this complicated system. And prove, basically, the burden is on them to prove that the parts are not counterfeit. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to prove a negative. Um, And so, you know, I was happy to hear Beth hasn't been caught up in that. But that is something that other repair shops around the country have been facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, sometimes the the other parts are not as good necessarily in that. So the, con- you know, the consumer is really left with this, you know, what should I do? I, I need to use my phone. You know, the, f- the smartphone these days, access to the internet and everything is, is becoming um, essential, uh, as you mentioned, um, not just as our obsession, but almost <laughs> essential to, um, to doing jobs like, you know, uh, working for Amazon, even um, doing the, the deliveries. If you don't have a smartphone and the smart phone is not working or the camera is not working or you can't you know the screen you can't work there um, because you need that phone 
I'm wondering, uh, Leah, when we hear about these tactics from uh, big uh, tech companies, uh, in, in one sense it might uh, it help a brand loyalty, right, if people think that the only place to fix their phone is to go to the Apple store because then you get uh, people who've been trained specifically and have uh, access to all of these different parts. But does that also work against companies like Apple? Or people are, is it being shown that consumers are getting frustrated with this and looking for uh, other options and uh, thinking about companies that maybe might be more apt to uh, make these parts accessible and not as expensive, that that might actually build brand loyalty? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, and this is definitely something, you know, that we talk about about in, you know, branding and consumer psychology, sort of at at, you know, what's the tipping point, right, um, between that loyal, um, you know, sort of consumer versus the, you know, the, the frustrated, angry consumer that walks away from the product. Um, and that's definitely something that you have been seeing. And, and I think the the telephone market just kind of shows that, you know, Apple used to have, you know, such a hold um, over the smartphone market. And it wasn't just because they were the first mover, but because they were offering this product um, and allowed for repairs. So repairs, I, I, I should mention, um, you know, and I think we I, I haven't done so yet, but that this is this has all been recent because repairs actually used to be able to be done by independent. You know, why were all these repair cafes started was because all the information and all of the parts had been available. And it's only been in the last, I would say, seven, seven or so years that the, um, the manufacturers have been sort of locking down more on the repair market because it's become big business for them. Um, and so you do see, you know, um, the little consumers trying to go into the Apple store and then being told, you know, the sales folks, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to place any blame on anybody, but the, you know, the, even the service people um, becoming salespeople saying, you know, hey, well, we could fix your phone, but it would cost $300 um, to fix it. And so why don't you just upgrade to a new phone? It only will cost you a few hundred more. And so, you know, a a loyal consumer who really wants, you know, the product um, to be touched by, you know, only the manufacturer is really in a bind. And so, you know, um, particularly for those who don't have that extra few hundred dollars, wh- what do they do? Um, and then and then actually something I've just been learning about more recently, there was a story out um, from the Washington Post today or yesterday about um, privacy issues where even if you send your phone in to the original manufacturer like Apple, um, you know, some of their, you know, uh, employees might not be respecting your privacy um, and downloading your pictures and things like that. So um, that's that's sort of another, and I guess, another issue. I don't want to digress mm-hmm. us too much, but that's another issue, too. I should mention we did reach out to Apple. We got a statement. Uh, part of it reads that we believe the safest and most reliable repair is one handled by a trained technician using genuine parts that have been properly engineered and rigorously tested. Um, so we have talked about uh, their claims about that uh, being best for the product's uh, uh, lifespan. But again, it doesn't help you oftentimes uh, in the pocketbook. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Leah, this was a really interesting conversation. This has been discussed uh, on the presidential uh, campaign trail, specifically some candidates looking at um, how this is impacting farmers. Can you briefly tell us about that? Yeah, so the um, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have both come out um, in favor of right to repair, um, looking specifically at farmers because farmers uh, and their equipment, they're very complicated uh, tractors um, are all run by software. Uh, and so they have trouble actually fixing their um, their equipment. And so they're 
the movement, I mean, this repair movement is really just, you know, the the support for it is broad spread. And there's so many different constituencies involved, farmers being sort of an unlikely, uh, unlikely sector, because they are just so frustrated, you know, when they're in the middle of harvest season, and their equipment breaks down, then sometimes the nearest repair authorized repair center is miles away. Um, and so how are they going to get their equipment over there back in time, fixed back in time for harvesting? They just want to be able to do it themselves on their own farm. And so that's, I think that's kind of why, you know, obviously, and you can hear that that's a sympathetic story, you know, and one that impacts the larger society, right? Mm-hmm. If, the, if, the har- if the farmer's not able to harvest, then that means we don't have the food at, at a reasonable price across the country, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so they've included that. But the hope, I, I hope, and I think others in the, um, uh, in the movement hope that that will then, um, you know, if if something can be done nationally in Congress for the farmers, that it would then maybe extend to to other sectors. And meanwhile, we should mention that uh, there are states. I think uh, more than twenty that have. Uh, have looked at proposals for right to repair. Um, you have done research along with colleagues about um, how to reconcile uh, intellectual property owners with the, the rights of consumers. We're going to actually uh, tweet out a, a link to that a research that you've done, Leah, so that our listeners can learn more. Well, but we want to we thank you for joining us today uh, for, again, a really interesting conversation, just uh, scratching the surface on, on this. But Leah Chen Greenwald, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University in Boston, joining us today from WBUR Studios in Boston. We hope to have you back, Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Kevin Morrison on the phones today. Also uh, did some great man-on-the-street interviews uh, for our show about right to repair. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Learn more about our show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. And as always, thanks for listening.